welcome to Faith Point, the podcast ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Prescott Valley with Senior Pastor Carol Eldreth. Our goal is to allow our faith to intersect with real life. So let's join Pastor Carol today as he shares with us from God's Word. I did forget a couple of things when I was up here before. Um, if you would take out your connecting card that's in your ministry guide, uh, Especially for those of you who are our guests today, maybe for the first time. We are thrilled that you're here and we want you uh, to know that this is an opportunity for you to be able to, to be uh, in contact with us. And if you would, at the back, if you would uh, just mark that uh, after you give us your name or whatever information you want to give on the front, um, we will be glad to... to um, be in touch with you, but also we have a gift for you today. It's a book. We want you here uh, in the foyer, and you can pick that up on your way out today, okay? And um, also, it it is not too late to join Immerse. We are in Immerse now. Uh, This is the second week, and so it's not too late. You can do that. This is going through the New Testament. It's the Reader's Bible of the New Testament, and you will read a little bit during the week, and then you'll come together and have have a group meeting where you can discuss those things you've read. It's entitled Messiah because the New Testament reveals to us Jesus the Messiah. For those of you who were reading these last two weeks, did you count how many times Jesus was called the Messiah in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts? Those are the two books that we've been through in, in the New Testament this, these last two weeks. I didn't either because there were way too many of them. There are a lot of references um, to Jesus being the Messiah. And so uh, we hope that if you've not been through this, that you will go ahead and sign up and get started with us this week. And now, uh, take out your sermon notes this time for real, and uh, let's pound prayer again for God's word. Father. We want to thank you for your word. We thank you that it is active, that it moves in our hearts and our lives, that it touches us uh, in those places where nothing else touches us. Uh, It gives us encouragement. It gives us admonition. It gives us strength. It gives us power. It gives us wisdom. It gives us direction for our lives. And so, Father, we pray today that those things would be true. For where we are falling short, Father, would you convict us? Would we be willing to then follow in repentance? And then, Father, would you give us encouragement? Encouragement to face this week with all the challenges that this week will bring into all of our lives. Would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us? Now, Father, we pray for that one or for those who are here who have never trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord. We pray that today would be the day of their salvation. We pray these things in Christ's most precious name. Amen. I want you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're looking at good news for the not so good. And today we're in chapter 6. We're looking at chapter 6. And we're continuing this series that we've been in now for a while. And uh, we are, we're, we're, we're coming uh, today to find a new out of control situation that has to be confronted in our lives. And we think, I don't need another one. We had one last week. And you're right, we did. And today, there's, there's new things. There are a couple new things that, that come up. In fact, I heard one, one uh, preacher who identified chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Corinthians as, as, as 
Church Gone Wild. And that's not a bad tagline for these couple of chapters. There's a reason why I named this Good News for the Not So Good. Because even in the church, there's a lot of things that have to be dealt with, isn't there? And because we are all sinners in need of grace, remember. And, and so um, we looked at some ways that the church at Corinth, this, this early church, had become a church gone wild. And last week we looked at the story of this unspeakable, almost unspeakably horrible sin um, that was taking place inside of the church. Uh, there was a man there who was intimately uh, having relations with his father's wife. So with his stepmother. And if that wasn't bad enough, the church knew about it and the church was okay with it. And Paul wrote to them in chapter 5 and said, you may be okay with it, but I'm not okay with it because God's not okay with it. You need to fix it. And so that was happening. And today we're going to look at a couple of more bad behaviors that were damaging this church's testimony. And they continue to damage the testimony of churches today. And so, let's look at them this morning. The first one was in the matter of lawsuits. Um, they, if, if you think that, that we're a litigious uh, world, and especially in a culture of the United States, you would be right. But we haven't come up to par with what the church at Corinth and what was going on in the, in the, in the, in the nation of Corinth, in the city of Corinth, rather, um, during Paul's time. Um, they love to take one another to court at every opportunity. Um, for them, it was a form of entertainment. It was the reality TV of their day. It took place not in a courtroom, in a, in, a, in, a, in a courthouse. It took place in the public square, out in the open. It was, it was Judge Judy in the people's court gone wild, if you will. They didn't have television. That was their entertainment. They went down there every day to watch and to see what was going to happen. And for them, it was, it was this, this bright spot in their lives. This is the culture that this church lived in. And so they grew up with that, and so they didn't see much trouble with that. Now, in our day, you have a jury of a dozen of your peers normally when you go to court. Not so in Corinth. In Corinth... Because there was this large open area where this was all being debated and taking place, you had a minimum of 200 jurors. That's an easy case. If it was a little more complicated case, it would be four or 500 jurors. And if it was a really big deal case, it could be as much as 1,000 jurors or two, up to 2,000 jurors. So you can imagine the crowds that show up for those kinds of things because this is going to be fun. We get to watch this, and it's going to be this great thing that's going on. And the, the problem was that in Paul's day, when he addressed them, Christians were involving themselves in this process. Members of the same church. It was the church 
at Corinth. It was singular. He said, you're taking each other to court. You're suing each other. And in the process, what was happening? In the process, they were going before people who were unsaved, who were not Christians, who, who didn't care anything about Jesus Christ, and they were having to hurl accusations back and forth against each other in front of an unsaved world. And they were airing all of their dirty laundry before an unsaved world. And yet, at the same time, they were supposed to be people who reflected who Jesus Christ is to an unsaved world. Were they doing that? No, they weren't. There is no way that they could be reflecting the true glory of Jesus Christ by their actions. And yet they thought it was the best entertainment you could have. They were enjoying it. And Paul writes to them about that. And, and he says into effect, he says, I expect you to be able to resolve these conflicts among yourself. He said, you should be able to do that without the help of those who have no connection to the church or to Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says in verse 4 here of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And verse 5 says, can it be that there, are none, or there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? He says, really? Come on? Get real? Somebody in the church could resolve these disputes. So why are you going before these pagan courts, these, these, these courts that are there today? And, and so today, taking each other to court isn't the only problem. Uh, have you noticed today in our world how many people take each other to task, Christians take each other to task in the open forums of the Internet, online and social media? And they throw accusations back and forth against each other. They deride a Christian leader or, or a Christian member even of their own church. And when I hear that and when I see that sometimes, I, I think, God forgive us. Somebody should be able to take that by simply one-on-one -on -one encounter with each other and maybe with a spiritual leader to go with them if necessary. And most people in the church today would say, but what's the fun in that? Where's the salaciousness? Where's the fun? You're robbing us of our joy. And that's what Paul's talking about, with finding joy in the wrong places. That's not what we need to be doing. And so, after discussing lawsuits, Paul turns the subject into something else. He says, let me tell you about another thing that you've got to deal with. Another thing that's gone wild in your church, and it has to be dealt with. And he, he doesn't cite specific instances. He doesn't tell names and all the, all the salacious details that went with it. 
but he says, I'm referring to sexual immorality of the most exploitive manner, individuals willing to go to prostitutes. And they're your church leaders and your church members. Verse 13, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, he says. Never should I do that. Never should you do that. Never should any of us do that. And then he goes on to say that when two people unite with one another, they unite in this intimate way and they become one. Look at verse 16. He says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, The two shall be one flesh. And what they thought was just this meaningless encounter Going to a prostitute, Paul said it makes a huge difference. It is a huge problem. But not to the people of Corinth. It was not a problem. Not to the people of most of the Gentile world, especially in, in, in Greece. It was not a problem. Because they had a Gnostic mindset. That a Gnostic mindset that was a belief system that said that our bodies are not important. Our bodies are, are just kind of something that we drag around with us for as long as we're alive. But they really serve no practical function that all that really matters about you and me as individuals is what's inside of us. And I'm not talking about our organs and our bones and, and the blood and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about our soul and our spirit. They said, anything on the outside of my body, including the outside of my body, doesn't affect my soul or my spirit. So I can do whatever I want to do. No matter what I want, no matter what the sin might be, no matter what the pleasure might be, no matter what the action might be, I can do that and not affect my soul and my spirit. Because if there is a God, the only thing he cares about is my soul and my spirit. The body is just what contains it. It's just this thing that we drag around with us. And so by that logic, they said, it really doesn't matter what I do. I can do anything I want to do. and It will not affect my soul or my spirit. And these Christians had grown up with that teaching and they liked that teaching. They were happy with that teaching. And so they just continued it in the church. And so they said, doesn't matter what I do. Preacher, you know, whatever I do is not going to make, make me not go to heaven. So I can do whatever I want because I'm saved. And that was their, that was their thinking. And, and that was complicated by the fact that they, that they took Paul's teaching and the teachings of the other apostles, and they looked at them and they said, hey, wait a minute, you tell us that our sins are forgiven, that we're born again, and that we cannot lose our salvation, so why can't we go ahead and sin and do what we, whatever we want to do? 
I can chase after sin, and I don't have to worry about it. It does not affect my spiritual life. It does not expect my, affect my relationship with Jesus Christ, and I'm still going to go to heaven when I die. So don't tell me that I can't have fun. Don't tell me I can't enjoy the things of this world. I can't enjoy taking somebody to, to court. I can't enjoy going to see a prostitute. I can't enjoy whatever it is that I want to enjoy. And so that was what they wanted to do. And, and so now um, they said, we can do whatever we want to do without consequence. There is no consequence to that. And Paul is saying to them, that simply is not the case. He's saying this, and you might want to find a place to write this down. There is no such thing as consequence-free behavior. There's no such thing as consequence-free behavior. You do not get to do whatever it is that is out there to do without consequence. Every action has a consequence. So when you do something that is against God's law and his purposes for your life, there are going to be negative consequences that come with that. So there's no such thing as consequence free behavior and he's saying that 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 kind of conduct that they're behaving in is not appropriate it is unbecoming of a believer of Jesus Christ and he says in effect this uh, if you're you're better than this Corinth you're better than this um, it's time to begin living up to your potential quit acting like an immature person who's unsaved just start living up to your potential. And so today, we're looking at, at that reality. Today, we're looking at, at the idea that, that you need to be who you really are. Today, be who you really are in Jesus Christ. And so it applied to the people of Corinth, but friends, it applies to the people in Prescott Valley as well. It applies to all of us. So I want to look with you, first of all, at three phases of the Christian life, three phases that Paul just lays out very succinctly here uh, in chapter 6. Three phases of the Christian life that every one of us goes through. We don't get to skimp on any of them. And, and if we're going to be the person that God calls us to be and created us to be, we have to understand what these phases are uh, that we're going through. The first phase is who you were back then. Who you were back then. Who you were, in other words, before you came to Christ, when you were still unsaved, when you hadn't, maybe even heard the name of Jesus yet, or you were heard it and you, didn't, you were rebelling against it, you didn't want to give in to Jesus, but who you were back then, and, and, and some of these, these people in the Corinthian church had quite a past, didn't they? Um, Paul's saying that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and that should have gotten their attention, and apparently it helped as we read later on in, in 2 Corinthians and other places, 
So if the unrighteous aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God, that's who we were. We were the unrighteous. We were those before Christ that that happens. And so in, in chapter 6, verse 9a, the very first half of that verse, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then you know what he does following that? He begins to make a list. He said, you want to know who the unrighteous are? I'll tell you. And so he starts to lay them out. Verse 10, or verse 9b, the second half. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite a list. And then he says, in verse 11, and such were some of you. Since to the Corinthians, that was your lifestyle. Some of you were some of those things. Now, I, I don't know that our collective list of sins is quite that colorful. If we were all stand and give a list of our sins before we were saved, it might not sound quite as drastic as this list is I mean golly sexually immoral idolaters adulterers men who practice homosexuality thieves the greedy drunkards well we might have some of those I don't know but you know what I do know we all have a past we have a past And we're all sinners in need of a Savior. We all at one time found ourselves sinking deep in sin far from the peaceful shore. And we had no way out. Nothing that we could do. That was who we were. I heard a story about a pastor who was um, in his worship service and he and uh, he couldn't help but laugh when he introduced two new people to their church. They were in the church, and, and two, the two different ladies who didn't know each other, he thought. And so he was just introducing them, saying, hello, um, this lady's new and you're new, and this is who you are. And uh, one was named Melinda, and one was named Leanne. And as he was introducing them to each other, Leanne said to Melinda, she said, you look familiar. I know you. I, I'm pretty sure uh, we've met before, but I just can't remember where. And Melinda immediately said, I do remember. She said, Leanne, I met you when we were in the county jail. And Leanne was embarrassed at first, but then the pastor said, he said, you know what, I can't tell you how happy it makes me that after meeting for the first time in the county jail, the second time you meet is in church. We all have a past. And we may not want to talk about it. We may not want people to know about it. But we don't have to live in that past. But when you become a Christian, you became a Christian because you were in need 
of becoming a Christian. You were in need of a Savior. Every one of us started at that point. That's where we began. Secondly, the second stage is that we, uh, that, that who you are today, who you are, who you were in the past, and now who are you today, who you are today. Verse 11, Paul goes on to say this. He said, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So he said there was that one point where you said, I need to be saved. I need to be rescued. I am sinking in deep in this, this ocean of sin, and I need help. And God provided that through Jesus Christ. And there's some words in there that he uses that are important. I want you to underline them. The first one is the word washed. It says you were washed. You were already covered in sin. You were sin, and God washed you. He washed you clean. How did he do that? Not with soap and water, but by the very blood of Jesus Christ. We were bathed in the blood of Jesus, and that sin was washed away. And so he says, you were washed of your sin. And not only were you washed, but then you were justified. And that's a big word, a churchy-sounding word, that you don't hear usually much anywhere else besides in church. And that you figured that some time ago with a quarter and that word you could get a cup of coffee. Now you'd have to have like a $10 bill in, a, in that word to get a cup of coffee somewhere. But it means simply, if we just break it down, just as if I'd never sinned. When God washed me in the blood of Jesus Christ, and when he washed you in the blood of Jesus Christ, he said, now it is just as if you've never sinned. I don't remember your sin anymore. I've put it behind me. I've put it out of my sight. He said, I've buried it in the deepest ocean. And God can do things that we can't do, and one thing that he can do is say, I don't remember it anymore, and I don't. You can offend me, and then you could say, would you please forgive me, and I will forgive you, and next week I'll still remember why I had to forgive you. Because I don't have that ability. You don't have that ability. We can't just forget, just turn a switch in our mind and forget. God does. He said, now you are just as if you had never sinned. And then the third word I want you to underline is the word sanctified. I got those backwards. That's okay. You were sanctified. He said, sanctified is one of those big words. It means that you are set apart as holy for his service. So he washes you. He makes you a clean container and then says, you're justified. You're ready to go out because I don't see the sin in you anymore. And he said, all that happened through the work of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ in our lives. In the next letter in our, in our Bible, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes the same group of people later on, and in chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 17, he says this, and remember, this is your memory verse from last week. So you should have memorized it by now. 
But in case you haven't memorized it, read it out loud with me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So he said, I washed you, I sanctified you, I justified you, and now you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. That's who you are now. That's who you are today. That's not who you were before you were saved, but the moment you're saved, that's who you are. That's the today, that's the now. In verse 20, back here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, you were bought with a price. That's how God could do that. That was the justification for doing that. He had sent Jesus to die for your sins and to pay that price for your sins. And you say, what was that price? The price was Jesus Christ on the cross. It was Jesus Christ when he hung there on, in, in, on wood between two worlds, suspended between heaven and earth. He paid the price for your salvation as he bled and died there. That's how that can happen. Your sins were forgiven once and for all at that point. And all throughout this letter, Paul wants to make sure that the believers in Corinth understand who they are in Christ. Who are you in Jesus Christ? And we see this from the very beginning. When he said in the opening chapter, in chapter 1, he said, you've been sanctified, you've been made holy, you've been enriched in every way. Um, you have every spiritual gift and that God has promised to keep you strong to the end. I want you to know who you are in Jesus Christ. That's who we are in Jesus Christ as well. He is still doing that in our lives. And, and to say it plainly, uh, he is saying to the people and to us, uh, he says, you can't out the grace of God. You just can't do it. His grace is greater than your sin. We sing that grace greater than all my sin. You can't out God. That's a statement, isn't it? That's just amazing. But maybe it makes it a little bit under, easier to understand how the Corinthian Christians could come to a wrong conclusion and how people today can still come to that same wrong conclusion. That if I've been saved, if I've been cleansed, if I've been sanctified, and I've been justified, and I can't lose my salvation, then how can it matter if I give in to sin today? How can it matter if I chase after pleasure? Because the inside of me, my soul and my spirit, belong to God. And he doesn't care about this body. We have the same Gnostic tendencies that take Jesus out of the equation altogether. Even though God's grace abounds, it is never to be misconstrued to mean that we're free to sin without consequence. Because there are no consequence-free behaviors. And that's why in, in, chapter, in this chapter, Paul's talking about 
the third phase of the Christian life as well. Phase one, who you were back then. Phase two, who are you today? And phase three, who you will be someday. Who are you going to be someday? In response to Christians suing one another in a secular court, Paul says in verse 2 here of our chapter, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Underline that word saints if you want to. He's referring when he says saints to all believers, to all Christians, not super saints, not a few of the saints, but the saints, he says. All of us. Are included in that. Last week in chapter 5, we saw Paul said, where, where Paul said that it's not his job to judge the world, to judge those outside of the church. And he was right. It wasn't his job to do that. And, and that's true at that point in time. But there will be a point in the future where that will change. That is not always going to be the case. There will come a time, the Bible says, when all believers, all saints, are, who belong to the body of Christ will be given authority and leadership in the world to come. Now, today we only speculate on what that world might be. And we're getting real close to that. We're starting to look at that happening in the book of Revelation, by the way, on Thursday nights. Just, just a little short advertisement right there. But we do know, even though we don't know exactly what it means and how it's going to happen, what it will look like, that God has future plans greater than we can imagine. Look at verse 3 again. Do you not know? that we are to judge the angels. How much more then matters pertaining to this life? If we're going to judge angels even, then shouldn't we be doing something here? In chapter 2, he said in chapter 2, verse 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. He said, I know you can't understand it right now. I know you can't even imagine it right now. But this is my word to you. One day you will judge angels. You will judge this world. And so he's challenging us, as long, along with the Corinthian church, to be mindful of that day um, that we're going to live in someday, but also then to be mindful of today. Mindful of the day that we do live in today. I want you to be watching out for that. So rather than allowing ourselves to be distracted by petty matters and momentary pleasures, he says that we need, he says, let's set our hearts on things above. Let's look to the future that God has planned for us. Let's, let's think about becoming the person he made us be today so that we can be the person that we will be someday. And know how to act in that part. Verse 14, he says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So I don't have the power to do those things that Paul's talking about. And he says, yes, you do. Because Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead three days later, the first fruits of the resurrection, now has the power to raise you up 
and do the things that you need to do and live the way that you need to live today that will glorify his name. And then he says, let's get on with it. I've read that a physician once said that at some point, every doctor in their first semester, and for others a little bit later, but at some point when they're studying, when they're medical students, they, they at some point begin to think and feel like a doctor. They don't start that way. But as they train, and especially as they, as they get involved with watching and, and helping out, they start to understand that at some point they become a doctor. At first, they, they, they go into school, and they go into their training, and they'll say things like, I'm still in training, I can't perform surgery, I can't prescribe medication. At this point, when someone comes to me with their ailments, all I can say is, hmm, can't really do anything for them. But, they say, but I'm beginning to feel like a doctor, and pretty soon, I'll be one. Pretty soon, I'll be one. Paul's saying to us, build your life around the person you will be someday, not around the person that you once upon a time used to be, and not even that person that you are uh, now when you forget who you are, but instead, think about that person who has been washed. Think about that person who has been sanctified. Think about that person who has been justified. And that is you. And live that life, not the old life. So in 1 Corinthians 6, and with that in mind, let me take these last few minutes that we have. And I want to share three attitudes that lead us away from that person that we used to be and point us in the direction of becoming the person God created us to be. How do I get through that process? And some attitudes that we can adopt to see that happen. The first attitude is that I will do what is right even if it means I be wrong. I'm going to do the right thing even if I get wronged in the process of doing that. I'm just going to do what's right. No matter what the cost. Paul said, instead of taking someone to court, just take the loss. Why not just take the loss? To protect the name of Jesus Christ. In verse 7, he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Do you realize how many times we think about life as a competition? I knew what I was going to preach on. I knew what I was going to say. And I was going to say, how many times are you driving your car in traffic and you think, I can't let that car and that person get ahead of me? 
After all, they had the yield sign. And so lo and behold, I pulled out of my driveway and went down to the corner and made a turn. There's never anybody at that turn. I drive to church on Sunday mornings all the way out of the neighborhood I live in and usually never see another car on the road. They're all parked, all snug and cozy in their driveways. But there was a truck. And I had to let him go by before I could turn out onto the same street. I followed him all the way out of my neighborhood, all the way out to that if you're on, if you live down in Dewey, down at the, that corner of six, where of 69, where the, where the the Maverick gas station is, he turned his left turn blinker on to turn left onto that street, onto 69. I did the same thing. But I pulled over next to him because it's a there's two turn lanes there. I turned into the left one because he had this big diesel truck pickup truck and he'd been going the speed limit of all things and I thought well he's going to be slow going up that hill and I'll be in front of him and I won't have to deal with his exhaust so we both started he got through it before I did and then then we started going up the hill and 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 he was going slow at first and I caught up with him and as soon as I caught up with him he stayed right beside me and then we were going the speed limit, 55 miles an hour in 69. And we went, on, we went through the speed limit at that point. And then I began to get a little bit ahead of him because one of us put their foot on the gas pedal. I don't like him being right next to me now. And then I got quite a bit ahead of him. And we got to Navajo and the speed limit is of 45, and I said, okay, God, I'm sorry, and I went down to 45. He forgot to say, thank you. I'm sorry to God, and he continued going at about 55, and he passed me, and then he got in front of me. I'd been on his left-hand side. I got ahead of him, and I went over to the right-hand side in front of him. When he caught up with me, he got over in the left-hand side, and we got in front of me, he went over in front of me. He didn't turn off on any of the streets going through Prescott Valley until he got right down here to turn off a 69 where we have to turn off of because they're doing all the road work. And he turned right. And I thought, oh. And then he turned right again immediately. So now I'm following him to church. And I'm thinking, he's probably getting out of the car and shoot me when we stopped, thinking I'm going to do something bad to him. And then he pulled in to the little restaurant right here for breakfast, I guess. And I went on by him. Life is a competition. We make it that way. We just find ourselves doing that. We don't mean to, maybe necessarily, but we do. And, and so it's, it's, you know, I, I don't want to, that person to inconvenience me and, and I can't get them, let them get away with being rude. It just wouldn't be right. It's my job to call them out and to set them straight. And Paul says in effect, no, that's not your job. Rather than insisting on being right all the time about everything all the time, maybe you could just decide to let 
things go and leave the conflict behind. That's not our old nature speaking. That's Paul speaking. That's God speaking through Paul. In verse, excuse me, um, not in verse, uh, Paul says in effect, rather than insisting on being right all the time, just leave that behind. It was Plato, I think, and I may be wrong on that. I think Plato said that a good man would rather be wronged than do wrong. I don't know that's true in society, but it should be true in the church. I would rather be wrong than to do wrong. That needs to be our attitude, even if nobody else has it. Second attitude is, I will do what I know is best, not merely what appears to be pleasurable. I'm going to do the best thing that I know to do, and not just settle for what seems like I'm going to enjoy doing it. In verse 12, in the first part of verse 12, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Now, here's this radical idea that Paul is setting out for us and acknowledging. Since all of your sins have been forgiven through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, and that's what we just talked about. Since all of your sins have been forgiven, you can rightfully say all things are then lawful. But not that doesn't mean that they're helpful. It may be lawful for you, but it doesn't mean it's helpful or good for you. In 1 Corinthians 6, 12a, in the, in the New International Version, it says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. And, and this may sound like a radical idea, but since the sin problem has been settled for us, we couldn't do anything for our sin problem except to turn to Jesus Christ. He settled it on the cross and with his resurrection and is settled once and for all and sin is no longer then the standard by which we should measure our behavior. And that's radical sounding. Sin's not the measure by which we are to measure our behavior. It's no longer a matter of right versus wrong for us as Christians. Instead, it's a matter of that which is beneficial and that which is not. I don't care if you say, I can do this and it won't make me lose my salvation and I can still function. That's not the measurement anymore for you, Christian. The measurement is, is it beneficial? Or is it not beneficial? Is it beneficial to you? Is it beneficial to the church? Is it beneficial to society? And is it beneficial to God's glory? Is it beneficial or not? Now I know that overeating is a sin. And God will forgive that sin. He just does. He will forgive gluttony. 
How do you know he'll forgive gluttony? Because he already has and he still does. He says, that's not the question. That's not the issue at that point. Gluttony will not keep you out of heaven. It might get you there a little sooner than you thought you would be there. But it won't keep you out. That's not the issue anymore. That's not the measurement. Because overeating, though, is not beneficial to anyone. That does become the issue. It's not beneficial. So, on the one hand, it's lawful. But on the other hand, it's not beneficial to me. It has its own consequences. So overeating, you might say, uh, you're, you're doing yourself, you're not doing yourself any favors. It's just not going to happen because overeating is neither helpful nor beneficial to us. And I just feel like I need to kind of tiptoe around when we're, when we're looking through this topic because I don't want to sound like I'm saying that you can get away with sin because that's a risk. And you cannot get away with sin. Sin always has its own problems, its own issues that come out. Sin brings its own misery and its own punishment, and it does it every time. Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 5, the wicked falls by his own wickedness. Wickedness, sin, has its own problem. And I don't know very many people who are Christians who boldly try to get away with the really big sins. We're not prone to do that. But I do know... <laughs> way too many Christians who think they can get away on a regular basis with a few little ones. It's not big. It's not very bad. world says it's okay. No law against it. I should be able to do this and not pay any consequence. Shouldn't make any difference in my life. But that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Big or small, it never ends well, period. It, it's never beneficial. It never works in your favor. And you may lie to yourself and listen to Satan's lies about it, but it won't change anything. It will never work out for your favor. It will never be beneficial for you. And so our attitude needs to be, even when I think I can get away with doing less, I'm still going to do what is beneficial and what is the best thing that I can do. And the third attitude that we need to adopt is that I will do that which doesn't come easy in order to bring glory to God. There are going to be things that God wants me to do and they're not going to be easy for me to do. But he still wants to receive glory in that. Back in verse 12, second half in 12b, he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. He said, I'm not going to be enslaved by anything. Other translations say I will not be mastered by anything. It's easier just 
so much easier to simply follow your pleasures with no resistance. Would you agree with me on that? If, if it's sexual temptation, so much easier to just follow your carnal physical desires. If it is, if it is that you're hungry, then just eat what you want and however much you want. If it is that you see something that you want and you still have the room on your credit card, then just buy it. It's okay. If something doesn't go your way and you're on the verge of a tantrum, by all means, throw it. Tell everyone in the room exactly what you think about them and don't hold anything back. And when you need a few drinks or more to take the edge off, go ahead. Take the edge off. That's the easy way. That's the path of least resistance. But the result however, as that each of those actions and so many more lead into slavery. They will keep you from being the person God called you to be. The one that he washed and sanctified and justified. It will keep you from doing what you need to do it takes, they will take away your choices. Every one of those things will enslave you and your choice will be gone at some point. And Paul said, just because it's permissible doesn't mean that he's willing to let himself be mastered by it. And that needs to be our goal as well. And that's why a couple of chapters down the road, we're going to read in chapter 9, verse 27, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He said, that's the life I'm going to live. Back in verse 19 of chapter 6, he says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And that means that you must be willing to do that which does not come easy in order to bring glory to him. Dale Carnegie said, If you're not in the process of becoming the person you want to be, you're automatically engaged in becoming the person you don't want to be. Bob Dylan, that songwriter, one of the, one of the most famous song, songwriters of, of the last decade, half decade, said this. He said, he's not busy being born. Oh, excuse me. He not busy being born is busy dying. God's calling us to leave behind forever the person that we used to be. But he wants us to move on in 
being the person that we are today so that we can move into the person that we will be someday with ease. And he's calling us to get busy being born into that new life that he created us for. He said, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified, and now you have all that you need to become the person that you were created to be. In that future day, we're going to be like him in every way because we will see him as he really is. But until that day arrives, let's strive to become the person that we will be someday. That's what he's calling us to do. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we're not who we used to be back then. And although we're not who we're going to be someday when we stand in your glory in heaven and see Jesus face to face. But Father, we know we're in the middle today and we want to be who you've called us to be there. So Father, speak to our hearts today about those things in our lives that, that need to change. Where we've taken the easy road, not the hard road. Where we've said, I want my vengeance. I want my justice. I want somebody else to pay a price. Let us take the loss in those times. Let us bring glory to you in everything we do. For that one again who is unsaved, Father, we pray that today would be that day that they would say yes to Jesus to say, I am sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. I need rescue. I'm crying out for rescue. Let them come to Jesus. Confess their sin. Repent. And walk with him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. Thank you for joining us today for Faith Point. Reach us online at firstsouthernpv.org or stop by to worship with us if you are in the Prescott Valley area. May God richly bless you today as you allow your faith to intersect with your life.